Comfy Green's latest book, The Bellbird River Country Choir, is a warm-hearted story of fresh beginnings, unexpected friendships, and the sustaining power of love and community. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series. So you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and in Binge Reading this week, Sophie talks about the gift she has, the unerring gift for making the top 10 bestseller list with books about female friendship and second chances. In our giveaway this week, we're changing it up a little. Enter the draw to win one of three ebook copies of my latest book, Sadie's Vow, book one in the Home at Last series. It's a historical mystery set in California of the 1870s. In fact, it begins in New York, 1872, with Sadie she swears to her dying mother to always protect her willful younger sister and then she's soon tested when that sister flees to San Francisco and she's forced to follow on a train to try and stop her from ruining her life. It's a doomed infatuation with a mob boss. Can saving a loved one mean losing everything? Details for the entry and the show notes for this episode all found on thejoysofbingereading.com. And Sophie is on our Patreon bonus content feature, Getting to Know You, Five Quick Fire Questions. Become a supporter of the show and listen in to her answers. Help support us. Or if you particularly like this episode and you can't see your way clear to longer-term support, then why not just buy me a cup of coffee to show you enjoyed this episode at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Jenny Wheel and then an X like a cross at the end of it. Jenny, J-E-N-N-Y, W-H-E-E-L, X, like a kiss. But now here's Sophie. Hello there, Sophie, and welcome to the show. Hello, Jenny. Thank you very much for having me. Look, you've made this area of small communities a real winner for yourself. The books that you've written about small communities have been top 10 bestsellers, practically all of them. And the most recent one is Bellbird River Country Choir, about a group of people drawn from disparate backgrounds and places who all meet in the small country town and join a choir. What is it that attracts you to small towns? Well, I think partly it's because we all form our own small communities within larger communities. I'm Sydney born and bred, but I live not far from where I grew up and, you know, I have friends that I met in the same area and all met in other small communities like working in a bookshop. So I think we do tend to find our little communities within the larger and also to be frank, from a storytelling point of view, a small community is really good to work with because I don't have to think about a whole massive cast of characters. I can just focus on one particular place and, who, and the people who live there. So that's interesting because the book does give a real sense of you understanding small communities. And I did know that you lived in Sydney, but of course, as you say, metropolitan centres 
all form their own smaller communities. Do you still have any contact, say, with people that you were at primary school with occasionally? Actually, no, because I um, I didn't have a lot of friends at school, in primary school or high school. School was not the best time for me, but I did make a very close friend who's one of the people this book is dedicated to when I worked in a bookshop. And I tend to think that, you know, the bookshop forms a small community in and of itself because everyone who's there wants to read and loves reading. And so you more naturally make connections that way. And that's how I've tended to make connections is through activities, which is one of the reasons why I'm interested in pursuing that in the novels, swimming in Shelley Bay, Lady Swimming Circle, yoga in Thursdays at Orange Blossom House, and now music in this one. Do you swim? I do. Yes, I swim. Swim in because I live near a harbour beach in Sydney, uh, so I swim at the harbour beach. I don't actually swim in the ocean. I did used to live at a surf beach, and I do look at the people who swim laps off surf beaches and think, well, they're a lot braver than I am. When I swim at my harbour beach, I tend to always make sure I can put my foot down on the sand if I need to in a hurry, and that someone is always further out than I am because they can be the shark bait. (laughs) It's very interesting because we will get on to talking about each of these books in a bit more detail, and you are very interested in music. We'll get on to that. And music features very strongly in Bellbird River. And then with Orange Blossom, it's set around a yoga community. So in each mm. of these books, you've actually chosen a setting that you understand very well and feel emotionally connected to. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think it's uh, – look – it's not necessarily me mining my own life, but I think it's normal as a storyteller to write things that you can connect with and feel and also write from experience in life if I can. And I just happen to have a few very well-defined interests that I've pursued for years on end. So when it came to writing stories, I've gone to them first. Yes. So in Bellbird River Choir, one of the key characters is this international opera singer, Gabrielle, who... <laughs> who almost retreats to this small town to heal herself. She's had Mm. an operation on her throat, which is affecting the quality of her voice. She wasn't really fully warned that this was a possibility, and she certainly didn't really consider that it was likely to happen to her. So now that she's finding her international career truncated, she's feeling a real loss of identity and purpose. So Mm. she's hiding out for that reason, and some of the others are also in painful retreat from pasts or from difficult circumstances, being a solo mum in Sydney and finding it very hard to cope, those kinds Mm. of things. So they've all got something that they're dealing with and they're drawn together in this choir. You really get to enjoy these characters as their past unfolds. Well, thank you, and thank you for reading so closely. Gabrielle was actually a character who was not going to have a point of view originally. I had, well, actually, I had put her in originally, and then I thought, no, I can't have five. I need to have four. In the last few books, I've had three and four. And then she just really insisted on being a main character in the story. And so I was just going to have her as Victoria's cousin. And I originally wrote her just as this little side player as Victoria's cousin, and then it just she became an irresistible force. And so that's that... That, that thing that happens when you're writing where characters come to you and tell you what they want and tell you who they are and how they have to be in a story, and I don't really understand it, <laughs> I've got to say. I think they just come from somewhere else and she wanted her story told. And she's... Yeah, she's a complex character. She's, she had a difficult childhood herself in uh, in Bellbird River and that's one of the reasons why she hasn't been back for a long time. But... For me, Victoria and Gabrielle are the love story of this book and that that bond that they've had, even though they haven't seen each other regularly for years, is so strong that Gabrielle instinctively knows that's 
what she needs when she's healing. Yes. It's a bit like asking Dame Kiri Takanawa to take a back seat, isn't it? I can see that. I can see why she broke through. <laughs> and Dame Kiri is actually in the playlist I've put together for songs from this. I've put a playlist on YouTube at the request of my publishers. So I went uh, all the songs as they appear in order. And I remember Dame Kiri singing at the Royal Wedding in 1981. And so I thought she's someone that people may remember well. Of course, she's had an incredible career. So yeah, she features in the playlist. You'll have to make sure we get the link for that playlist because I'm sure people would be interested in hearing it. It is now on my social media. And so if you, and I've got a link tree which has it on as well. So if people Google Sophie Green author link tree, that'll probably pop up. That's great. Look, one of the things I actually enjoyed about this book, I read quite a lot of mysteries because we handle quite a lot of mysteries on the show, but the pace of this is more elegiac than some of the mysteries that I read. But it is, it's lovely. It's like you're stepping into a flow and you just get carried along in the most lovely, restful, but irresistible kind of way as the personal secrets come to life. And they do just very gradually get revealed as we go through the book. You get to know the character's innermost thoughts. And as mm. you say, you take almost each chapter is a point of view chapter from one character, isn't it? It is. Yeah, that's how I structure it. And when mm. I plan these novels, I use a colour-coded grid <laughs> to, so I can see the flow of, of points of view and how they shift and change and to avoid having you know too many of Victoria close together, for example. So uh, I like to move that around. I think it's good for the reader to to have changes of perspective and different things going on at different times. That really impresses me, the colour-coded. It's something <laughs> I always would love to do on my own writing but never quite get to do it. <laughs> I feel, well, it was born out of necessity. I just, you know, I have a full-time job and I don't have a lot of time to write. So I realised after I'd written the inaugural meeting of the Fairvale Ladies Book Club that uh, a bit more planning would probably stand me in good stead. Yeah. So that's when I started developing all these documents that I now have. And so uh, the novel I'm writing for next year is the most planned of anything I've ever written. That's wonderful. Look, as we've said, music is something that's close to your heart and obviously it's at the centre of this book. I noticed that in the author credits, you credit a friend who mm -hmm. invited you to join a band 20 years ago. I gather it was associated with the Tamworth Festival. Yeah. How did all that come about and tell us about it? So my friend's name is Narilyn and we worked together and she had worked in the music industry for years and she's also had her own bands for years and she's this incredible force of nature. She's just the most wonderful, inspiring person. I'm not the only one who thinks that. So she was putting together a country music covers band and she wanted it to be mainly women and then the men were going to be the rhythm section. So she had a whole concept in mind and she needed a backup singer and percussionist. Now I've played piano since childhood childhood, done a bit of singing in choirs myself at school and whatnot. And I just thought, oh, I've always wanted to be in a band. I'll try out for her band. And so she put me in and I was a snob about country music at the time because I only knew about American country music and I didn't like a lot of it, but there wasn't much going on lyrically or musically for that matter. But we booked some gigs at the 2003 Tamworth Country Music Festival and up we went and it completely changed my life in the most glorious way because the standard of music that was there, the artists, the collaborative nature of the industry and of the festival and all those artists together, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. So someone who, who loves all sorts of music and has always been really passionate about music, when I was at university I would go and see bands several nights a week and so I've always been a bit actually obsessed with music. For me it was Mecca and just loved it. So. 
I left the band a few years after that and she has a different band now. That band actually plays a lot at the Tamworth Country Music Festival and that friend, Nerilyn, is now my guitar teacher, so I've been learning guitar for four years. So we have a long music-based friendship and I really believe that without her there would be, I wouldn't be writing about country music, which I do as a hobby, and therefore I don't think this book would exist. Yeah. So you mentioned you're writing about country music. You've got a country music website called Mm -hmm. Sunburnt Country Music Mm -hmm. and that's where you interview and review country music artists. Are they mainly Australian or...? They are, yes. I do include New Zealand artists. In fact, I just recently interviewed the wonderful artist Jenny Mitchell who has a new album out called Tug of War. There's my little plug for Jenny. (laughs) She's originally from Gore and now lives on the North Island. So because there is a great New Zealand country music scene, I do keep my eye on that, but I mainly focus on Australians. I used to cover some Americans, Canadians and British artists, but I, I really just prefer Australian New Zealand music. So that's why I cover it. And Again, my passion for music is it's increased every time I hear more music from Australian artists because it's so good, so rich, they're so talented, they're so dedicated. So I, I feel that industry has given me a lot and I do the website as a way of giving back to them. That's fantastic. Yes, it is a very rich music industry that you've got there. And you have also talked about how country music has taught you things for your writing. How do the two interact and interlink? I think because country music, particularly in Australia, is a is a real storytelling genre. I know it is elsewhere too. Uh, but I think here, yeah, you know, there are there are Australian stories about all sorts of aspects of life, about work, about the land, about relationships, family, all sorts of things. So I think listening to a lot of that music and the discipline in telling a story in a song is really instructive because you know they've got three minutes to often present a whole world and and some artists are amazing at it they can some some of them put a whole whole novel themselves almost in a in a song not because of the amount of words just because of the amount of story they get in but also having the opportunity to talk to a lot of artists over the years interviewing them and finding out how they feel their relationship with fans is how, what they think about fans and how they think about fans and that connection between audience and artist is really really strong in Australian country music and I was aware of that before I even started writing fiction and I think it really informed what I do and still informs what I do because I do think about that connection I think my job is to tell a story to people it's not to be a writer if I'm a writer I can just you know, sit and write and I can do that for my own amusement, but I'm telling stories to people and I wouldn't have known how to do that the way I do without those artists. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I've seen a number of commentaries saying that, you know, the music industry is that much further ahead of the author industry and we've got a huge amount to learn from them and the way that they are relating to their audiences. So it's interesting to hear you say that. Well, yes, I've also noticed increasingly just in the past few weeks, the number of them who are on TikTok, actually, they've all had to adapt, particularly over the past couple of years. It's been it's been really disheartening for a lot of them, but also really inspiring for me to witness the ways that they have sustained or created connections with audiences because they haven't been able to play in person. And yes. it's not just yeah. about lives on Facebook. It's been other ways of telling their story, presenting themselves, getting music out there. So, yes. yeah. Yeah, again, yeah. I learn a lot from them. Yeah. Look, Thursdays at Orange Blossom House is set in North Queensland and it's a multi-generational story, once again, 
primarily about women's lives, the chances that they've taken and those that they've missed. They're brought together doing yoga at Orange Blossom House. That's the meeting point. And I'm interested, tell us about your yoga experience and what drew you to write a book about around yoga, I guess. So I first got on a mat as a student in 1993. And I was was an active child. I'd done ballet and all sorts of other things. And it was actually while I was working at a bookshop in Sydney and someone, a colleague, said to me, oh, you should you should go to yoga. And then another colleague said, oh, you should do Iyengar yoga. And at that point, we forget now, people who are practicing yoga now may not even have realized, but in 19, the early 1990s, there wasn't a lot of yoga around. A lot of it had been done in people's garages and in church halls. And indeed, it was in a church hall at the top of my street that I went to my first class because I went to the Yellow Pages and I found the Karingai Yoga School, and I called and I said, do you have an Iyengar yoga class? And she said, yes, Mondays, 7.30 p.m. So off I went and the teacher's name was Judy and Judy would be my teacher for over 20 years. So I just found that practice made sense for me and it wasn't just about the postures. It was about the whole encompassing nature of it, which is to do with meditation and philosophy and the history of it, all sorts of things. And at about the seven-year mark, Judy started saying to me, it's time for you to teach. And I said, well, I don't feel ready. And and I still think it's really important to be a student before you can be a teacher. And so about the nine-year mark, I finally gave in and said, what do you want me to do? And she said, go and get a diploma of remedial massage to learn anatomy and physiology. So I did that. Then I did my teacher training. So I completed my teacher training in 2002. And so I've been teaching on and off for 20 years now. And uh, teaching is a, is a whole different thing. And I think you then have to struggle to remind yourself that you're still a student sometimes and that, that you can just be a student. So when I wanted to write a novel, thinking of an idea, the communities around yoga are very strong. I know a lot of people practice yoga now. I was really interested in in writing about the sort of experience I had, which is why the novel it starts in 1993, because I could remember that sense of it being completely new and no one really having any idea what it was. People, some people thought it was a weird sect or a cult. And and Sandrine, who is the yoga teacher at Orange Blossom House, is. Not me, but everything that comes out of her mouth in class is something I've said. And I just thought I might as well use my own material for <laughs> teaching. So yeah, and I think you know, yoga is a is a practice of transformation. And I always think that people come to class wanting something to tr- to change. It's not just an exercise class for a lot of people. They want to leave positively transformed, even if it's just a little bit at the end. And so I like that idea as. Um, a metaphor really I guess for what happens with the characters that they could positively transform through the practice and also just through their own lives. Yeah yeah so perhaps turning in quite a different direction your association with the very popular soap series in (laughs) Australia called Home and Away. Yeah. You did several sort of books along as spin-offs from Home and Away, didn't you? Yes. That's what the word I'm looking for, spin-offs. So tell us a little bit about, for people who don't know outside of Australia, Home and Away has been a long-running 
So passionate. Yes, for over 30 years, it's it's still broadcast around the world. So I was, many years ago, I was the Home and Away website producer as what was one of the, the jobs I had. I've worked in Seven's online, very nascent online division. And I hadn't watched the show actually before then, but I came to really appreciate that dedication to storytelling and also to communicating with an audience. So there's that theme again that I picked up in country music. And then uh, several years ago, I had the opportunity to write two official Home and Away novels. One was a, a novelization of a, of a screenplay for a special that had aired. Another was a continuation of a storyline of the characters who had left. And, uh, and I'd, you know, I'd never really left that world in my head. I'd stopped watching Home and Away, but it was so nice to be back there. And I often say to people who are interested in writing fiction, that Home and Away is really worth studying because that is a story that's been going for over three decades. They really know how to keep an audience engaged. It's It was fascinating for me to study the way they do it when I was writing those novelizations. I, I studied the way, the, basically the emotional peaks and troughs and the rhythm of it. So I could mimic that in the novel. And I thought, yep, they know what they're doing. Like that's this is why people keep coming back and staying for years and years and years and people get hooked on it. They're very clever storytellers. And so, yeah, I think you could do worse than treating home in a way as your masterclass in storytelling. Was that your first experience of writing fiction? No, it wasn't. I'd actually written a few romance novels, but under a completely different name. And I'd started doing those. The first one I did actually, someone dared me <laughs> to see if I could do it. <laughs> And I'd written, already written some nonfiction, ghost written some nonfiction. So I, and I was writing about country music. So I do think writing about the music was the, was my preparation to write fiction. Cause again, trying to communicate with an audience. Yes. And with yes. music, trying to describe something that's very difficult to describe, I think, to other people. So yes, I'd, I'd written some romance novels, love the structure of romance and think it actually gives you a lot of freedom. And really enjoyed writing that, but then it was time to move on. And so not long after the Home and Away novels, I wrote the inaugural meeting of the Fairvale Ladies Book Club. Which became a top 10 bestseller, we must add. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) happily so, yes. (laughs) And was listed in quite a lot of different awards, yeah. Yeah. Turning away perhaps from the individual books to talking about your wider career, where was the point where you felt you wanted to write fiction and was it associated with any sort of eureka moment or was it a long-standing desire? I think it was a desire when I was a child and then I I had no desire whatsoever for a really long time and it wasn't until that person dared me to write a romance novel that I thought, oh, okay, I I could give this a crack and I really just treated it as an experiment. And then from that point on, I thought, oh, okay, great. I think I can do this. I also thought for a long time I'd had nothing to say in fiction. But the reason why I started writing about country music was that just over a decade ago, I was very sick, as in at death's door sick. And I had I started writing about music because I couldn't do anything else. I couldn't practice yoga, let alone teach it couldn't do a whole lot of things that I was used to doing and my convalescence took months. So that writing about that music gave me a creative outlet and so that's really the path that led to writing fiction. So, you know, I never realised at the time I had no thoughts of writing fiction at the time I started writing about music, but that's Mm. where it's led me. Wow, and were those initial romance novels, were they indie published or trad published or...? They were traditionally published, yeah. Mm. Um, even though I am a publisher in my day job, I would never want to self-publish. There's too much involved in publishing. I'm very happy to have other people do that for me. <laughs> <laughs> if there was one thing that you'd consider the secret of your success then as a, in your creative career, 
inside publishing and out of it, what would you consider it to be? Sticking with it. I think that's, I think it's really just showing up, well, showing up and sticking with it. I think you have to show up on the page and you have to just put your head down and sometimes you don't feel like it and other things are going on and it's really just remembering that that it's steady steps. It's not some big, you know, moonbeam that shines down and gives you the novel. You just have to apply yourself. And that's not romantic. And I think a lot of times we would like the creative process to be romantic. I think it's, I like to say that writing is blood and gristle and earth a lot of the time and it's not hammocks and scented candles. So we just have to show up and stick with it. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that you have publishing as your day job. How how are you involved in the publishing industry? So I I started off as a bookseller while I was at university. I actually did a law degree and I didn't end up practicing law, uh, but I did end up working in publishing as a baby editor and then full-grown editor and uh, detoured through online with Channel 7 and other places and was a literary agent for a few years and then became a nonfiction publisher. So what's the most recent book you've, you've published as a non-fiction publisher? I'm about to publish a book called The Cower Breakout by an historian called Matt McLaughlin. And so I do publish memoir, crime, history, lifestyle, all sorts of things, science, parenting, yeah, a, a range of things. What's your publishing house? It's Hachette, which is the same publishing oh, house. So I'm published okay. by, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. Now, the Cowra Breakout, that's C-O-W-R-A. It's an yes. Australian town. Just mention a weenie bit about its significance for Australians. So the during World War II, there was an internment camp in Cowra for prisoners of war, some of whom were Japanese, some of whom were Italian. There were some others there. And at one particular night, there was a breakout from Cowra. The Japanese prisoners decided to break out and it was the only land battle of World War II fought on Australian soil, and it was horrendous. The people died, lots of Japanese prisoners of war died, some Australian soldiers died, and it all happened in this town where no one had really had a glimmer that this was ever possible. And there was some thinking that Japanese were trying to escape back to Japan, and this book looks partly looks at the fact that was not at all the case. They knew Japan was nowhere nearby. Uh, I think that was a story at the time to make them seem like they were quite silly. That oh, you know, they're trying to get back to Japan. How ridiculous! That wasn't it. They were they were trying to defend the honour of their country, which is what they'd done as as mm. when they were serving. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Look, we're starting to come to the end of our time in this section, so. Sophie is reader. This is the, the podcast. It's the joys of binge reading. We do mainly deal, well, we do primarily deal with popular fiction. Can you recommend some of the things that you're reading recently in the fiction area and make any recommendations for our readers? They don't all have to be Hachette. <laughs> well, look, I... I'm late to discovering Michael Connolly, who is an American uh-huh. crime writer, and I am churning through the Michael Connollys. So really enjoying those. I also just discovered the Richard Osmond Thursday Murder Club that a lot of other people have discovered before me, and I loved that. I wasn't quite sure what to expect, but thought that was terrific. I There is an Ashet author called Kate Nunn, which is K-A-Y-T-E, and I really love Kate's books. Ah, uh, yes, she's been on the show. Yeah. Ah, there you go. Mm. Didn't mm. know that. But I recently read Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro, who is a Japanese-British author, and read a lot of his books. And if anyone's read Never Let Me Go, which was a book of his from a few years ago, Clara and the Sun is a bit like a companion volume. I mean, they're not the same characters, but I think a continuation of his ideas from that book. And I found that 
really moving and wonderful and he's such a terrific writer. Also wrote Remains of the Day, which a lot of people will know. And he's a literary uh, author, isn't he, really? Yes, he is. Yeah, yeah. So (laughs) I do tend to mix it up. I'm also a huge fan of Di Morrissey, who is an Australian author. Oh, yes, she's been on the show too. (laughs) Oh, thank God. No, Di's just a a wonderful storyteller and, and so, yes, when I want a treat, I'll read a Di Morrissey. And do you ever read any romance these days? I do occasionally, but mainly on, on ebook. And I haven't for a little while because I'm in a bit of a nonfiction reading binge yes. at the moment. Yeah. But yeah. I do, yes. I, I still love romance novels. I tell you one nonfiction Australian, we really do nonfiction, but Kate Langbrook's Chiao oh. Balak caught my eye and it was just such a fantastic read that I, I had a little sounding of our listeners, would they like to hear Kate and they did and it's been one of our highest you know polling episodes for the year it was great to have her on yeah look looking back down the tunnel of time if there was one thing about your writing career that you would change what would it be I'm not sure that I would change anything because I tend to think it's all led to where I am now and I'm a believer in things happening at the right time, at the right place, in the right way. <laughs> and so I don't I think if I would say oh I'd change this or that then it would alter what's happening now. So yeah. 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 So I think yeah. as much as there have been frustrations and I think there are certain novels I might have written differently or changed things about them I always say no effort is wasted when it comes to writing. That even yes. if, and I throw yeah. out a lot. Um, I start a lot of manuscripts and they go nowhere. But I don't think that's wasted. I think it's just me sort of flexing yes. the muscle. Yeah. Do you feel as if you've found your niche with these ones that you're doing at the moment or have you got desires to branch out and do something completely different? I do love writing these stories and uh, I love writing stories about women and their friendships and, and women getting to know themselves as well. I may branch out. I always have ideas for plenty of things. So I just note down ideas as they come to me. I think the trick though is once you've been writing in a certain vein for a while is whether readers want to see anything different. And I'm always uh, happy to give readers what they're looking for basically. Yeah. Look, what is next for Sophie as author? What have you got on your desk over the next 12 months? Well, I have a deadline for next year's novel, Looming. That's coming up in a month's time. So I'm I'm working on the next novel and still working on my country music as well. But mainly these days I do interviews and I do pieces to camera for that rather than writing. So that'll keep me occupied on the creative front for a while. Have you got a title for that new book yet? I do, but I'm not sure I'm allowed to say it. Okay. Because I haven't announced it. I think they like to do the cover reveal. So Yes, of course (laughs) they do. I've got to save it for that. Actually, your covers are gorgeous. I might add that too. Yes, yeah, so Krista Moffat of Christabella Designs has done all the covers and I think every time I see one, I think, oh, she can't get, do better than this. It's just gorgeous. And then the next one's even more beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Look, from what you've said, we already know you really enjoy interacting with your readers. Where can they find you online? So I'm on a few places. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Sophie Green Books. I'm on Facebook at Sophie Green Author. And I have joined TikTok, also at Sophie Green Books, and I tweet less frequently at Sophie Green Auth. So, yeah, I find that uh, Twitter, I, I think to do well, you've got to be engaged in a lot. And I just, I don't have a lot of time to look at social media yeah, between creating the books and creating stuff for social media. Don't have a lot of time to look. That's fantastic, Sophie. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Jenny. It's been lovely to talk to you. Next week on Binge Reading, Kate Quinn. And that's Kate, 
C-A-T-E, not the author we've had on already, Kate with a K, Kate with a C, and her contemporary thrillers, Black Widows and Blood Sisters, have both sold in 10 territories and both are optioned for film. The latest one, Blood Sisters, has a tagline you couldn't resist. You'd die for your best friend, but would you kill for her? When a man is found gruesomely murdered, the Outback pub in Dead Tree Creek is quite convinced all fingers point to the two backpackers working behind the bar that night. Two American girls who skipped town before the body was discovered. That's next week, Kate Quinn and Blood Sisters.